Welcome back to Bitcoin Magazine's Weekly Bits podcast, our newsroom recap of the most impactful stories we're publishing. My name is Peter Chawaga. I am a senior editor at Bitcoin Magazine, and today I am joined by my fellow editor and staff writer, Colin Harper. How's it going, Colin? Hey, Peter. How you doing, brother? I'm doing good. It's good to see you. This is your first day back in the office after an extended trip to Europe. And that brings me to the articles I'm hoping to discuss for this episode, your Living on Bitcoin in Europe series. Hell yeah, buddy. It was uh, was a good trip. I kind of rolled it into vacation at the end of it, kind of killing two birds with one stone, work and vacation. But yeah, I was gone for about three weeks. And uh, it's good to be back in the States, good to be back in Nashville. And yeah, looking forward to uh, running through the article series for you because it was a it was a pretty fun time. Yeah, the articles are great, super well done, super unique to the type of uh, story we do at Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, for those who haven't had a chance to see them, there are three of the three articles in this series. Um, they're published a couple of weeks ago, but they can be found on Bitcoin Magazine if you just search "Living on Bitcoin in Europe." Uh, so, for starters, I wanted to ask Colin what made you want to kind of tackle this article. And maybe highlight all the spots you hit on your trip. You mean like besides getting to go to Europe? Right, uh, aside (laughs) from just the company paid vacation to Europe where you're eating at cafes. Yeah, honestly, kind of hard to reconcile a little bit uh, with my conscience. Not really, but uh, but yeah, so, you know, for for context, I did this in San Francisco in January of this year. And it was like, uh, I don't know, it was interesting because I thought... um, I thought it was going to be um, perhaps more eventful than it actually was, uh, and uh, I took a, I took my cue from a Forbes journalist, former Forbes journalist, now she works for the New York Times, uh, named Kashmir Hill. Yes, like the song for anyone wondering. And uh, back in 2013 and 2014, she decided to only use Bitcoin for a week to live. Um, and she paid for food this way. She bought a bike and Bitcoin to get around. Uh, she even stayed a few days in a uh, hacker hostel, uh, Mission 20. Um, and so she did it for a week. And it was uh, there were you know it was it wasn't the most it wasn't the easiest thing in the world. wasn't the most difficult. So I decided to try to do it in San Francisco. It turned out to be really boring. None of the none of the stores accepted Bitcoin anymore. I was just using BitRefill in Paxville to buy gift cards to to eat and to get around with Uber. And so I thought to myself, okay, well, it didn't work so well in San Francisco, but I've heard really good things about a few cities in Europe that are supposed to be Bitcoin hotspots. And I thought maybe it'd work a little bit better there. And uh, lo and behold, it was a hell of a lot more interesting than the first installment. So really the impetus was kind of, I had done it in America in one city. Um, the only other city I could probably get it, uh, you know, get around with it was probably New York, uh, maybe, maybe Austin, maybe Chicago. But so I wanted to see if I could do it in Europe and if I could do it a little bit better. Yeah, and I'm definitely going out of order here, but I know you hit Prague, Berlin, Amsterdam. Yeah, and then Arnhem was the last one. Arnhem, right. Yeah, so the order was I landed in... I actually landed in Brussels, took a train to Amsterdam, then I uh, spent a day there, went to Arnhem, spent two days there, then went to Berlin for the Lightning Conference, and then ended up in Prague. So, yeah, my impression from reading this uh, series and your series in San Francisco, um, was that compared to the last time when you did this in America, uh, it was a little bit easier, more interesting, as you said, and just in general, in those cities at least like straight up more businesses are accepting Bitcoin for their services. Yeah, that was pretty much nailed it. That's the too long didn't read. And I think that was like the really, that was the important thing for me is I wanted to actually go to places that accepted Bitcoin rather than just going through BitRefill and then like 
buying Uber Eats credit or something like that, or Uber credit and doing Uber Eats, or like maybe getting like a gift card for another like like McDonald's or some garbage like that. Uh, because when you do that, it's kind of funny. It's like you're paying in Bitcoin, but like you're not really paying in Bitcoin. And it's actually kind of funny because the people don't know you're paying in Bitcoin. It's kind of this weird kind of disconnect, you know. Um, but there's something cool about that, right? Like if you were just banking on Bitcoin, you could use these services to buy pretty much anything you'd need in the developed world, which I thought was pretty cool and eye opening. Um, but this time around, yeah, like from the moment I landed in Amsterdam or the, from, uh, you know, within two hours of being in Amsterdam, um, I ended up getting, uh, I ended up being able to go to a cafe and order a coffee and a sandwich with Bitcoin. And so like, I, right off the bat, within the first two hours, it was already panning out to be better than the San Francisco trip where it took me four days before I actually bought something point of sale with Bitcoin. And then it ended up being a glass piece, actually. <laughs> uh, so I do want to ask kind of a more granular question before asking about some of the more thematic big picture stuff. Uh, what was kind of the general sentiment you're getting from an otherwise standard business that did take BTC? Uh, so I'm kind of asking about so a cafe that's more used to people coming in and paying in euros or whatever, but they do have, you know, upon special request, sort of like a Bitcoin enabled payment ser- service. Is it frustrating to them to have to whip out the iPad for that? Is it like this is just a way we're going to bring in you know more people into the cafe because we're letting them pay this way? Like what is the benefit to them to, you know, quote unquote, like a normie business? Why are they adopting Bitcoin? Yeah, so this is actually a question I asked a lot of people, especially when I was in Arnhem and in Amsterdam. Uh, so the short answer is it depends on the merchant. It depends on who's working the counter. Uh, the longer answer, uh, when I was in Amsterdam and Arnhem, basically all of the businesses there accept Bitcoin because of this one dude named Patrick, who uh, and uh, his some of his business partners, including Annette, uh, who run this service called Bitcasa, which is basically a point of sale terminal uh, that will uh, accept the Bitcoin payments for the merchants, and then at their request, either send it to a wallet that the merchants then control or liquidate it and then wire them the funds. And so, and in the case of in the Netherlands, where the places where that's accepted, uh, I asked a lot of the merchants, especially in Arnhem, because Arnhem is where Patrick's from, and that's the the Bitcoin city. Uh, they have a website called Bitcoin Stad. Stad is city in Dutch and German. And uh, basically, I asked all the merchants there, I was like, why do you guys do this? And I kind of joked with them, is it because, is it because uh, Patrick's really charming? You know, is he just really convincing? You know, I didn't really get what, uh, why they would choose to do it, because it's not very many people paying in Bitcoin, as you could probably guess. And, and the, the consensus was kind of that, uh, I think... Um, some people actually legitimately, like a few answers I got where people were like, you know, this this seems to be the the future, you know, uh, digital payments are where we're heading. So this this currency, you know, this basically digital bank and digital monetary system seems to be something that they should learn how to use. So I think some of it is legitimate curiosity. I think uh, some, of, some of it is also perhaps peer pressure is not the right word, but once, you know, um, you know, a dozen stores take it, then the next dozen are easier to onboard and so on and so forth. Once they saw more people doing it, it became more acceptable, even if it is still a novelty. Uh, I think some have do have legitimate interest in the technology and some actually hold what they get from it. So it's kind of like a nice little savings hedge. Um, when I was in Berlin and Prague, though, I got the idea because fewer places accept Bitcoin in those cities than in Arnhem 
and in another and in, in Amsterdam in total, I kind of got the idea in in Berlin and in Prague that the people who were doing it were actually Bitcoiners and were actual you know people who were interested in it. Like for instance, Room Seventy Seven is the is, is the perfect example. Um, you know, the guy who runs that's a long time cypherpunk. He's been into Bitcoin since 2011. I mean, he was he was on the cryptographic mailing list, if I recall correctly. Uh, he'd been keeping track of uh, f- former attempts at, you know, digital cash, like, you know, back with like e-gold and uh, Bitgold and following all those things. And then one of the guys in Prague that I uh, that runs a cafe called Usadu, I think he's just a Bitcoiner. So, um you know, it's, there's not really much of a benefit for the people, to be honest, unless you're looking at it as a way to save some money. But it's, you know, I mean, if I'm being frank, it's technically more laborious because they're going to have to have to go. They're going through Patrick, who's then going to liquidate it for them into euros and then send it to them. So Right. So that, and that's kind of what I'm getting at is like the dream of Bitcoin is that it will be really easy, a uh, better medium of exchange for merchants because uh, there will be no transaction fees or payment will be more seamless. I think maybe uh, the fact that they're like accruing Bitcoin and using that as a savings hedge sort of speaks to that, but there didn't seem to be yet. I mean, maybe adoption is the first step really anyway, but there didn't seem to be anything yet that's an actual tangible promise that's realized yeah normal otherwise normal cafe is like accepting bitcoin yeah i mean and i kind of got a little bit of a taste of that promise in arnhem because one of the things that patrick said i was kind of asking him this is like why would they do this if this is just another hoop to jump through and uh he said you know well again part of it is some people believe that they should just try to dabble in it it's not that much of a headache necessarily because it's not too difficult to use um, only one or two uh, merchants or like cashiers really were annoyed when I asked to pay for it because it doesn't take that long, especially if you're using Lightning. But one thing he said was there was one instance where a butcher uh, buys, and I actually went to this butcher, he buys bread from a local cafe or from a local bakery that also accepts Bitcoin. And they'll pay for the, you know, like if he has Bitcoin in his wallet, then he'll pay for the bread in Bitcoin. And so there's a circular economy there, albeit very small. And I think that's going to be the thing that, you know, once the Lightning Network gets to a maturation point where it becomes usable and feasible um, or some secondary network, I think that that's what it's really going to take to have sufficient merchant adoption is not just being able to pay for Bitcoin elsewhere, but for the merchants to be able to exchange it for goods with each other. That's going to be crucial. But obviously, we're not there yet. Right. And so in addition to sort of like the this is a cool experiment, let's try using Bitcoin in Europe. One other big thing I took away from your article, and this is you know probably influenced because you were at the Lightning Conference, you were kind of among the Bitcoin community in Europe, but that you sort of had this idea that you're a little bit emboldened or saw adoption enough there that you're like interested in sort of taking some of that energy and it's kind of like continuing to fight the good fight, as it were, like pushing for Bitcoin adoption and would like to see us, you know, like, as you said, compared to San Francisco, there's a lot more adoption in your experiment, you know, most recently in Europe um, and that you're kind of like motivated to push for adoption or feel like that good energy could be brought over here to America and that we might kind of make some strides to be more like that. Yeah, especially the cypherpunk values that I saw. And I definitely do think there's obviously a selection bias because I did go to the Lightning Conference and I was like juiced afterwards because it's just all of these like Bitcoin geeks and all these cypherpunks, you know, packed into like a single, you know, a single space. Um, But yeah, I mean, that is one thing I did take away is that the Europeans uh, that I was interacting with in the cities that I was in at least seem to have more of a cypherpunk ethos when you can see it with like 
you know, um, hacker communities, which they exist in the United States, but like Paranolony Polis is the one that I went to in Prague. I also went to Seabase uh, uh, in Berlin, which is not just Bitcoin specific, but, you know, they've got Bitcoiners in there. Obviously, there's some intersection, but it's a very, uh, very prominent hacker space. They say the first in the world, they claim. Um, and, uh, you know, I would like to see some of that more in the United States because I think uh, it's kind of ironic that we're the country who whose government commits probably the most uh, egregious privacy abuses, and yet people are kind of complacent. We think, well, our government perhaps wouldn't exercise those against its people, or they just don't care as much. I don't know. I kind of had the feeling that the Europeans are more kind of concerned with privacy, and they have more, They technically, I mean, theoretically, you know, whether or not this pans out in practice this way, because, you know, um, European countries are also probably engaging in mass surveillance, you know. But, you know, they have the GDPR protection laws in the EU, which are privacy protection laws that we don't have in the United States. Um, even my uh, our, one of my friends that I visited in Belgium uh, after uh, the assignment when I went on vacation, even he, you know, he uses DuckDuckGo, and uh, he's not even a Bitcoiner, and he's a big privacy head. And I kind of talked to him about it, too. Um, and I don't really have a conclusion for why that is. I think maybe it's because we're the world's superpower in the United States. So we've kind of gotten complacent with the, uh, with the amount of power our government has. And we kind of just see it as a fact of life. And we think we're the good guys maybe, but, uh, yeah, I just, for whatever reason, I saw that people were in Europe, you know, a lot of people were more willing to, uh, were more willing to have open conversations about those kind of privacy things. And this is not to say that we don't have those among us here in America. There are those of us. But like sheriff population, maybe not so much. Because again, my friend in Belgium, he's not a Bitcoiner and he it was a big, you know, big topic for him. And the other thing I noticed too is there wasn't as much of a stigma for me spending my Bitcoin. I feel like in America, whenever I tell people I'm going to do something like this, they're like, you're an idiot. You should just hold on to it. That's what my next question was. So like I'm a hodler for sure. And if I was going to go buy a cup of coffee with bitcoin i would be like ugh i wish i didn't just lose that bitcoin and you know kept the fiat in my wallet instead so am i kind of part of the problem that way and curbing adoption or not uh in- encouraging it among merchants um i don't think you're part of the problem i mean i'm the first person to say also it's your bitcoins to do with it what you want you know i guess that's where it is for me it's like you know if you want to hodl like that's great if I want to spend, I think that's also good. And I don't think we should be necessarily telling each other how we should spend our Bitcoin. Um, that being said, I do think like, you know, the hodling use case and the savings use case is a good use case. Uh, but we're not developing the lightning network so people can hodl, right? We're developing the lightning network so that we can have a tool with which to spend Bitcoin and to unlock certain applications either online or even just simply being able to spend it in person in a way that will, uh, you know, kind of bootstrap a circular economy and I do think that eventually, if we really want Bitcoin as a monetary system to be successful, uh, a circular economy is going to have to develop, right? So like the digital gold meme is a good meme because no one's spending gold anymore, right? I mean, you're not going to go to your, you might go to your pawnbroker and, and exchange it for cash, but you're not going to go into a restaurant and try to, you know, uh, you know, or like go to a hotel and, you know, you stay five nights in the Ritz Carlton and try to pay with a one ounce gold piece, right? Like no one's doing that. But, you know, gold also arose as a... Uh, means of exchange and as a store of value, um, you know, kind of simultaneously, but it was used as a means of exchange at one point. And I think we are going to have to have a, a Bitcoin being used as a means of exchange if a dis- if the digital gold meme and its, uh, you know, eminence as a decentralized digital 
monetary system is going to remain intact. Like we're going to need that eventually. Now, do I blame people for not spending their Bitcoin right now? Like, no, absolutely not. Cause there's not really any way that you can necessarily. Um, but you know, eventually if we have enough people who believe in this stuff enough to where they keep, you know, the majority of their wealth in it, which is another thing I think Europeans may, might be more comfortable with. I don't know. Some of our American listeners might be like, like cursing me for saying that because I don't know a lot of a lot of American Bitcoiners probably probably not our listeners. I think you're safe with <laughs> yeah. tuning in here. Um, but you know, I mean, I think once more people are comfortable with holding the majority of their wealth in Bitcoin and they start seeing price rises and they're not willing to cash out on a fiat as much, like you know, look, like yeah, your wealth is growing, and you know, let's let's say that you have all most of your savings in Bitcoin and you take your daily or you take your weekly or biweekly paycheck in cash. Then you're going to use that cash to get around. But if Bitcoin starts increasing in value year after year, you know, you might be incentivized to spend some of your holdings because it's, you know, it's it's uh, value that has accrued over the year. And you might be wanting to spend that value, right? Because it's, you know, it's additional money in your savings that you didn't have before. So, you know, if, if the if, if number go up, then, you know, you might not feel as bad about like, oh, your local, you know, Levi merchant accepts Bitcoin now for whatever reason. I'm going to go get a new pair of jeans or something like that. Yeah, just that last point. Maybe it's a double-edged sword. The more a number go up, the more I'm like, ooh, wait, I got to hold on <laughs> yeah. to this Bitcoin. But um, right, once the uh, monetary system throughout the world collapses, then I'll be spending my sats for sure. Yeah, and that's the thing too. That I think like once if, if we really do get to a point where like, you know, if the dollar becomes worthless – and like most currencies end up becoming worthless, you know, places in high stress areas right now, like places like Venezuela and Argentina, you know, they're not spending their Bitcoin, they're using it to exchange value between other currencies. And that's great. But if Bitcoin becomes the most stable currency, then people are going to be naturally incentivized to spend that Bitcoin. And then once we get there, that's just an entirely different ballgame. I mean, like, I don't know if we'll ever get to that point where it, it does become the world reserve currency, but if it does, man, that's going to be something to see. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming in, Colin. Thank you for going to Europe and coming back to report on you know Bitcoin adoption there. Is there anything else about that series you'd want listeners to know? Um, definitely, if you're in Europe, I would highly recommend. If you're in Europe... If you're if you're in Europe or you're a European Bitcoin or you're an American and traveling in Europe, I highly highly recommend giving Arnhem a visit. Uh, that was probably my favorite place I visited during the entire trip, um, just because as a city, it was. I mean, there are just so many ways you can spend your Bitcoin if you're willing to do that. I bought vinyl records. I could have done an escape game. Uh, it was really cool. And the the dude uh, Patrick and uh, Bitcasa, they're doing fabulous work over there. Really, just like honest hard work uh, by the sweat of their brow. Not really, they're not getting any. They're not they don't take any fees for their service. Um, but highly recommend going to Arnhem. Really can't sing its praises enough. Um, also, uh, if you're a Dutch listener, give uh, the Bitcoin Show by our own Aaron Van Weerdem a listen. Uh, I went to a meetup my first day there. Got to meet uh, Boris, one of his co-hosts, um, and uh, that was really cool. But yeah, I guess I'd give those two people a shout out. Awesome, man. And where can everyone find you on uh, the internet? I am, uh, you can find me on Twitter at As I Lay Hodling. Uh, you can also just uh, look up my name, Colin Harper. That's one L uh, on Twitter. You'll see me. I'm, uh, I've got a goofy little profile picture. And uh, obviously, you can also find me on BitcoinMagazine.com. Awesome. The 
The Bitcoin Magazine Weekly Bits podcast is a BTC Media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. It was produced and edited by Graham Peterson and David Hollerith. If you're interested in reading the story we discussed or others like it, check out our homepage at bitcoinmagazine.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter at Bitcoin Magazine to keep up with all the latest. You can find more engaging podcasts over at letstalkbitcoin.com and you can follow them on Twitter at the LTB Network for all the latest episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the show on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you enjoy the show, please take a few seconds to give us a rating and review. It really helps us improve and reach new listeners. Finally, I want to remind listeners about the upcoming Bitcoin 2020 conference being held in San Francisco from March 27 to 28 next year. It's already shaping up to be the biggest Bitcoin conference ever, and I know there's a ton more to announce. You can learn more at Bitcoin2020conference.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week.